Well, good morning, everyone. As you can tell, I am not Patrick. That's pretty obvious. I'm taller. <laughs> Patrick is feeling better. I talked to him this morning, but he's not at 100% yet. Uh, so he would still appreciate your prayers in that area. He asked me to step in for him this week and to build on the theme of discipleship that Pastor Herb introduced last week. Growing a culture of discipleship is our church theme for 2022. And it's the desire of the church leadership that over the course of this year and beyond, personal discipleship, defined as working to present every person complete in Christ, will become a way of life that defines who we are and what we do here at Emmanuel. Last week, Pastor Herb said this, we all need to be growing disciples. Nothing is going to have more of an impact in our lives, positive or negative, than whether we are growing in Jesus Christ. I hope you found that statement challenging. We all have room to grow in Christ. That's true for those who have been Christians for eight months and those who have been Christians for 80 years. And I'm pretty sure that in our congregation, we have both. So this morning, we're going to talk about what makes a good disciple. Specifically, we're going to examine one of the markers common to all good disciples, and that's humility. Why is humility an important part of the discipleship process? Because a humble spirit is a teachable spirit. A humble Christian is aware that he or she has much to learn. A humble Christian is willing to submit to wise teaching. A humble Christian recognizes their need for spiritual growth and is willing to put in the time and the effort to make that growth happen. Dr. Stuart Scott, who wrote a book called From Pride to Humility, sums it up this way. It is probably safe to say that humility is the one character quality that will enable us all to be all Christ wants us to be. And that's the ultimate goal of discipleship, isn't it? To be all Christ wants us to be? That starts with humility. The fact is, we can't even be true followers of Jesus Christ without humility. In order to come to Christ in saving faith, we have to accept the fact that we're sinners, that we are incapable of making ourselves righteous before a holy God, and that in order to be saved, we must depend on someone else, namely Jesus and his work on the cross for our salvation. All of that requires a humble heart. Without humility, we don't even take the first step toward following Christ. So this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at humility. We're going to define what the term is. What does humility in a biblical context mean? We're going to see that the Lord highly values humility in the lives of his followers. And we'll close by looking at some of the ways that we can cultivate humility in our lives. So let's start with the definition. Wayne Mack is the author of the book, Humility, the Forgotten Virtue which I highly recommend and which I will be quoting from quite often this morning. Mac defines humility this way. Humility is an attitude wherein we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God 
and attribute to him the supreme honor, praise, prerogative, privileges, worship, devotion, authority, submission, and obedience that he alone deserves. It also involves a natural, habitual tendency to think and behave in a manner that appropriately expresses this attitude. So we're going to take a minute and just kind of break down parts of that definition. In other words, a humble person understands his or her proper place in the universe in relation to God, who is holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent. He or she recognizes that they are not holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent. Now, the majority of you are saying, yeah, I understand that. I got that. I can check that box. But then comes the hard question. Do our thoughts and our actions match our understanding? Does the way we live our lives reflect the fact that we understand and accept our proper place in the universe? Anytime we're upset with the providence of God, we're not accepting our place in the universe. In Genesis 18.27, Abraham was deeply aware of his insignificance. When he dared to speak to the Lord, he put himself in his proper place. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? In Luke 3.16, we see that in relation to the Son of God, John the Baptist didn't even feel worthy of untying Christ's sandals. And the prophet Isaiah understood this insignificance. He wrote in Isaiah 40.15 that to God, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on scales. That's a great word picture, isn't it? How much does dust weigh on a scale? If you were to put a speck of dust on a scale, unless that scale is extremely sensitive, it's not even going to register. It's totally insignificant. A truly humble person also recognizes his or her own sinfulness before a holy God. That's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 6.5, when the prophet found himself in the presence of the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The tax collector in Luke 18 couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Genesis 32, Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. Here's a little exercise I want us to try. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. We're going to start reading in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what are you thinking about when you hear those words? Were you thinking about the people in your life that need to hear that, that fit that description? Wayne Mack says this, Truly humble people read a passage like Romans 3.10 to 18, and they think to themselves, this is me. This is my heart that is being described. Our definition of humility goes on to say that a truly humble person gives God all the worship, honor, praise, and obedience that he deserves. God alone is to be worshiped and exalted. Amen? Matthew 4.10, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The humble person is devoted to God in a way he is devoted to no other. He acknowledges God's supreme authority. He obeys God's commands. Says Mac, he realizes that this is his great privilege to live his life for the glory of God in everything that he does because he alone is worthy. I love that quote. It's a privilege, a privilege to live our lives for God. Not a burden, not a chore, not an inconvenience, a privilege. Do we think of it that way? That's what Paul is saying in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. A truly humble person demonstrates a God-centered mindset. The humble person puts God in the center of everything. The proud person puts self in the center of everything. The humble person desires to worship, love, and serve God at all times and demonstrates this mindset by serving others. In other words, he or she has the mind of Christ. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this kind of humility where we recognize our insignificance where we attribute to God all he is due in the way of glory, honor, and praise, and where the opportunity to serve him is seen as a privilege and not a chore, that should be evident in our Christian walk. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. The Lord places an extremely high value on humility. He wants to see it developed in the lives of his followers. We know this for three reasons. First, he commends us to be humble. Two verses that make that abundantly clear. Peter 5.5, close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time, he may exalt you. And Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Walk in, a walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. Again, notice that both these verses are written as commands, not suggestions. Wayne Mack writes this, To fail to humble oneself is to disobey God 
and such disobedience is sin. Jesus himself calls his followers to be humble in Matthew 23.10. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Clearly, the number of times that we are commanded in Scripture to be humble points to the fact that God considers humility a very important virtue in the sanctification process. A second reason we know humility is, characteristic, is a characteristic God values in our life is the fact that the Bible frequently warns of the consequences of harboring pride in our lives and not cultivating humility. Pride and humility are like a teeter-totter. When one goes up, the other goes down. You cannot have humility where pride exists. Proverbs 16.5 warns, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Abomination is strong language. It means a thing that causes disgust or hatred. I like to think about it in terms of food. What is something you absolutely hate? Not something you just dislike, but something that you just cannot eat, like lima beans. That's an abomination. That's what abomination means. That's the level of disgust attached to the word. God is also opposed to the proud. That's James 4, 6. And Proverbs 18, 12 says this, Before destruction, man's heart is haughty, which is another word for proud, but humility comes before honor. So think about the progression outlined in those verses that we just read. God sees pride as an abomination. He's disgusted with it. He actively opposes those who are prideful. In other words, if you're prideful, God is actively working against you. I heard it once explained, it's like, it's like paddling a kayak upstream in a raging river. You're not going to succeed. That's what it's like to have God working against you. And ultimately, as we see in Proverbs 18, the end is destruction. The bottom line is this, pride will be dealt with one way or another, either by us or by God. One commentator put it like this, God has two plans for us. Plan A is humility, plan B is humiliation. And I, I have a little story that I've told many times, so a lot of you have heard this, but I think it, it illustrates this point pretty well. I used to be part of a group that spoke at Alpine Ridge at the retirement home there on about a monthly basis. And I had spoke there several times and a wonderful lady there named Barbara McFeeters came up to me and just said, you're so wonderful. We're so lucky to have you. You're, you're so good. Thank you for coming. And I thought, that feels pretty good. I like that. And so I enjoyed when Barbara told me that every time I went there. Well, one time I got there a little early and I was talking to Barbara and I said, Barbara, what did the man ahead of me last week, what did he talk about? And she said, oh dear, she said, I'm sorry. I can't hear a thing when you guys talk. <laughs> so you can humble yourself or God will humiliate you. Rooting out pride may hurt or embarrass us, but it's really an act of love on the Lord's part. Charles Spurgeon says, one of the greatest works of grace in the heart is, a humble, is God's work to humble our pride. 
The point is, pride is a serious sin that God does not tolerate, and the Bible makes it clear it has no place in the Christian life. Wherever pride is found in life, we are called to root it out and replace it with humility. A third reason we know humility is important to God is because he promises to bless those who are humble. Listen to these verses, James 4, 6. We already noted that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 15, 33, humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Jesus repeatedly taught the principle that the humble will be blessed. Matthew 18, 4, whoever then humbles himself, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If we're honest, many of us spend a lifetime pursuing honor, riches, and greatness, don't we? We spend a lot of time doing that. God's word says those things are attained not by actively chasing them, but by humbling ourselves. Wayne Mack says this, while a humble person may not experience blessing as this world defines blessing, God promises that the humble in heart will know his blessings. As believers, we know that this blessing is of far greater worth than anything and everything in the physical world. Does that promise sound exciting to you? Does it make you want to cultivate humility in your life? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says this, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool for my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. So all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Another good book on humility is by C.J. Mahaney. It's called Humility, True Greatness. And this is what he says about that verse in Isaiah. Humility gets God's attention. Here we find... Oop, Wrong spot. In his mercy, God is drawing the Israelites' attention away from their prideful assumption of privilege as his chosen people and away from their preoccupation with the trappings of religion. These things don't attract his active and gracious gaze, but humility does. Think about that for a minute. Proverbs 15.3 teaches that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. But when we humble ourselves, God actually stops and takes notice. Think about that. God actually stops and takes notice when we humble ourselves. As author and pastor Brad Bigney says, we need to get excited about the incredible promise of humility. Amen? Unfortunately for us, humility does not come naturally. Because of our sinful natures, we are preloaded with pride. We're like laptop computers that come preloaded with software. And it doesn't help that our culture tends to celebrate pride and look upon humility as a weakness. If you're a football fan and you see a wide receiver score a touchdown today, what does he do? He stands there and he points at his name on the back 
and he holds his number up so everybody can see it. And he goes like this so that the crowd can applaud for him. Doesn't tell you that somebody had to throw him the ball and nine other guys had to block so that that somebody could throw the ball. It's all about him. And then somebody like Tim Tebow kneels in prayer after scoring a touchdown and he's vilified. Our nation celebrates pride and it looks upon humility as weakness. Stuart Scott says, pride is the epidemic vice. And we're all familiar with epidemics, aren't we? We know what that means. An epidemic is characterized by being widespread and by growing. So if it's true that pride is an epidemic, Scott says this, then humility is an endangered virtue. Ultimately, pride is at the heart of every sin. We're looking to usurp God's authority. Only a Christian who has the Spirit of God can cultivate, cultivate genuine humility. But it takes effort to put off pride and put on humility. If we want to be good disciples, we need to be humble. And if we want to be humble, we have to put in the necessary work. As we look into how to diminish pride and increase humility in our lives, there are four important things we need to keep in mind. First, humility requires new birth. That's the first step in our road to humility, and it's the most important one. Scripture makes it clear that no unsaved person can be truly humble. That's because pride is the default nature of the unbeliever. Only when that nature changes can we practice true humility. Pride is essentially giving to ourselves the honor and glory that belongs to God. Psalm 10, verse 4, describes the unbeliever like this. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, speaking of the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. A person who doesn't give God a second thought clearly is not going to give him all the praise, worship, and devotion he deserves, right? Some of us are going, whew, glad that's not me. But before we get too proud, we need to remember that prior to salvation, we all had sinful, proud hearts, and none of us sought after God. We have nothing to boast about other than the work God has done in regenerating our hearts. When Patrick walked us through John 3 several months ago, he gave us five principles of new birth, or regeneration as it's often called. Number two was, it shatters all human pride. Without this new birth, we can never truly be humble. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that our darkened, hardened hearts that do not seek God, hearts that say there is no God, are changed into soft hearts that recognize our desperate need for God. When that happens, we see ourselves as we are, sinners with no hope of being righteous before a holy God. And humbled, we turn to Christ and we kneel at the cross. Then and only then are we on the road to humility. Wayne Mack says, once we have cast ourselves on God, truly repenting of, of our sins and placing our faith in him alone for forgiveness, we have begun the process of decreasing pride in our lives and increasing humility. If you're a Christian and if you've repented of your sin and your hope for forgiveness lies solely in what Christ has done for you on the Christ, cross, you not only have been justified, you have been released from the power of sin. 
Whereas before you didn't have the will or the ability to pursue true humility, now you do. Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Faith in Christ is the mark of a new birth. And faith is vital if you're going to cultivate true humility in your life. Romans 8, 8, and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. A foundation of faith in Christ is a requirement if we want to develop true humility, the kind of humility we need to be good disciples. Once that foundation is firmly in place, God begins to build on it. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.13 tells us, It is God who is working in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Notice the contrast between the saved and the unsaved. In Psalm 10.4, we saw that the unsaved person does not seek after God and thinks and acts as if there is no God. Now, according to Philippians 2.13, suddenly our will has been changed, and not only are we thinking about God, we want to work according to His good pleasure. We didn't want to read our Bibles before, now we do. We didn't want to obey His commands, now we do. We didn't want to worship God in church, now we do. We didn't want to serve others, now we do. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is molding us into the image of Christ. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And what does that image look like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now, that list doesn't specifically mention humility, but many of the godly traits are manifested in the humble person. Humility leads to patience. Humility leads to kindness. Humility leads to gentleness. Humility leads to faithfulness. Humility leads to self-control. So as we begin our pursuit of true humility, we need to first take time to examine ourselves. We need to see if we're truly committed followers of Jesus Christ. We have to see if our hearts have been changed from one who thinks and acts as if there is no God to one who has the will to work for his good pleasure. In other words, we need to do as Paul urges in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Second, we must recognize that we have a responsibility in the process of developing humility. It's unfortunate, I think, that God doesn't just snap his fingers and make us humble. Developing Christian character requires effort on our part. That includes, first of all, being a student of the word. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As we read or are taught the scriptures, we should be constantly reproved and corrected as the Holy Spirit shows us our sin 
and how to overcome it. But that can only happen if we're willing to avail ourselves to the teaching and preaching of the word on a regular basis. In James, we are implored to be doers of the word. But we can't be doers of the word if we don't know what the word says. Availing ourselves to the word of God means a couple things. For one, we must study the word with hearts that are seeking correction and instruction. The word of God is the tool the Holy Spirit uses to mold us into the image of Christ. But it's not one-sided. It's a process we're involved in. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate the word of God, convict with the word of God, and instruct with the word of God. But that illumination, conviction, and instruction doesn't take place if we never crack our Bibles or we never sit under good teaching. And that's the other thing we need to do. We need to be sitting under good teaching. That means more than just listening to the exposition of God's word on a Sunday morning. It means coming with the expectation that God's word will change us. That's God's promise in Isaiah 55. The word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The goal for us is to come to church expectantly every Sunday and every Wednesday night and every other time that we're here for instruction. Eager to hear instruction from God's word and then being just as eager to put what we have heard into practice. Third, we need to be aware of the tools God uses to humble us. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. By being aware of the tools God uses to refine us, we're better able to see his hand at work in our lives. The Lord brings people and circumstances into our lives that give us opportunities to practice and display humility. And the better we recognize those moments, the better able we are to respond biblically. There's an equation that I use in biblical counseling. It's opportunity plus obedience equals growth. You have an opportunity to practice humility, whatever that opportunity may be. If you're obedient to God's word and you practice humility, you grow in the image of Christ. Opportunity plus obedience equals growth. Wayne Max says, one of the Lord's primary means of humbling us is to put us in situations that are completely beyond our control. Anybody ever been there? The Israelites experienced 40 years of hardships in the wilderness as the Lord taught them humility. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 clearly states that the Lord led them through the wilderness for 40 years specifically to humble them. The Lord taught them to rely solely on him. He let them fall prey to hunger so that he could provide for their needs. They had opportunity to be humbled. Sometimes God puts us in the wilderness to show us what's on our hearts. Time of testings show us our tendency toward discontentment, selfishness, or bitterness when things don't go our way. Ultimately, our pride is revealed. 
Wayne Mack says, difficult circumstances show us the reality of our lives. We are dependent on God for absolutely everything. God also teaches us humility through people who are wiser, more mature, more gifted, and more effective than us. What's a common reaction when someone is better at us than something? At times, it can be jealousy or envy. When those thoughts arise, God is providing us one of those opportunities to practice humility. Do we believe scripture and humbly accept what we have? Or do we follow our heart and tell God, I deserve more? God challenges us not only with people around us, but with the examples of people who have displayed humility. Consider the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. When we read his story, knowing that his example is one of the means by which God teaches his humility, ask yourself this. How would I respond to the kind of difficulties that Joseph experienced? How would I respond if I was mistreated and abandoned by my family? How would I respond if I was unfairly accused and thrown into jail? Wayne Mack says, when we compare our responses to similar circumstances to Joseph's response, he did not become bitter or resentful. He never complained against God about his circumstances. We ought to be convicted of our pride in the face of his humility. The Lord also uses those around us to develop humility by offering rebuke and criticism. Anybody enjoy rebuke and criticism? It's not easy. Our natural reaction is usually to go on the defensive, isn't it? But if we have a mindset that understands criticism and rebuke are among the tools God uses to humble us, our reaction can be different. It can be a response of humility. Think about this for a second. Do we believe God is good? Yeah, maybe. Do we believe God is good? Yes. Do we believe he is loving? Yes. Do we believe he is sovereign? Yes. With that knowledge, we can rest assured that criticism and rebuke are for our good. One commentator put it this way. We can be sure that God could, that's his sovereignty, and would, that's his goodness and love, protect us from insults if he wished to do so. When he does not, we know that he is allowing the insults and criticisms because he knows that we need to be humble. So when you are criticized or rebuked, even if the person doing it is criticizing in a sinful manner, our response should be humility. And how do you do that? How do you do that? A humble response would be not to respond in kind, but to search for the nugget of truth buried in what is being said. What does that look like? One of my favorite theologians is Jonathan Edwards. He's one of the best our country's ever produced. And he was removed from his pulpit in Northampton, Massachusetts, after serving there faithfully for many years. And although he was crushed by being voted out of the pulpit, and the reasons were uh, vicious slander and unwarranted criticisms, he was humble enough to examine himself and acknowledge that his pride had, at least in a small part, contributed to the conflict. This is what he wrote to a friend in 1751. 
God knows the wickedness of my heart and the great and sinful deficiencies and offenses which I have been guilty of in the course of my ministry at Northampton. I desire that God would discover them to me more and more and that now he would effectively humble me and mortify my pride and self-confidence and empty me entirely of myself and make me to know how that I deserve to be cast away as an abominable branch, as a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. When we see criticism and rebuke as opportunities for growth, we can apply the same humble attitude that Jonathan Edwards did. We can do that when we're misunderstood and when we're mistreated. And hopefully we can display the same kind of humility that Edwards did. It's interesting that years after he was voted out, some of the men that had brought the charges against him apologized and said they were entirely wrong. And let me share with you the rest of the story. After he was voted out of the pulpit, Edwards continued to attend that church. And amazingly, on the Sundays when the congregation was unable to secure a visiting preacher, they did for a time ask Edwards to preach. And he did. Why would he do that? How many of us would be unfairly fired from a job and then go back and work for him until they found our replacement? He did it because he was humble. He cared more about the people's souls and God's glory than he cared about his own pride. When we see such trials as opportunities to identify and rein in our pride, we grow in humility. That is what James is writing about when he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that testing your faith produces steadfastness. Failure is another tool God uses to develop humility in his people. Our failures are embarrassing, aren't they? Our sins, too, are embarrassing when they're dragged into the light. When they occur, we have two options. We can wallow in self-pity and despair, or we can see it as a helpful reminder of how imperfect and sinful we are and how much we need Christ. Same circumstances, two possible responses. One focuses on ourselves and leads to despair. The other focuses our attention on Christ and leads to humility. For a long time, David tried to cover up his sin involving Bathsheba. When he was finally confronted by the prophet Nathan, he felt deeply convicted. It was in his remorse that he wrote Psalm 51. Let's turn to Psalm 51 for a second. going to read the first few words. This is what David wrote when he was confronted with his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Wayne Mack makes an interesting observation about this psalm. It was written for the choir director. 
It was intended to be sung in public worship. Of this, Mac writes, the king, the ruler of the people, humbled himself to such an extent that he was able to write a song for the congregation that recounted his struggle to hide his sin, his repentance, and his restoration to the Lord. We might infer from this that David knew how much he needed to be reminded over and over again how he failed the Lord. The constant reminder of this public song probably helped him to continue to walk in humility before God. A fourth step in cultivating humility is to work on our thought processes. Thoughts drive our feelings, not the other way around. We're not designed to feel emotions apart from our thoughts. For example, if your thoughts are focused on the many blessings you have, it's going to create a sense of gratitude, a sense of thankfulness. On the other hand, if our thoughts focus on what we want but don't have, it's going to create a sense of bitterness and discontentment. Two people could have nearly identical circumstances, but one is thankful and the other is bitter. And the reason is the thoughts that they allow into their minds. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought obedient to Christ. When it comes to cultivating humility, that means putting off our thoughts that are prideful and arrogant and focusing our attention on thoughts that produce humility. What kind of thoughts produce humility? What kind of things should we be thinking about to produce humility? One, think about how Christ humbled himself when he came to earth. Philippians 2, 5, and 8, have this mind among yourself, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at the ways Christ humbled himself. He was the creator of the universe, and he became a man just like us. He was born into humble circumstances. He was obedient to his parents, the very creatures that he had made. He laid aside his divine attributes and became obedient to the Father, seeking the will of, Father, of the Father in all things. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And finally, he humbled himself to the point of death, a death he did not deserve. Proverbs 15.33 teaches us that humility comes before honor. Christ's life bore that out. He humbled himself more than any man who's ever walked the earth. And as a result, God exalted him. Philippians 2.9 he bestowed on him the name that is above all names. Second, think about the examples of humility displayed by men who were used mightily by God. We already talked about Joseph. He earned a name for himself in interpreting dreams. 
so much so that the Pharaoh of Egypt came to him one day seeking his counsel. How did Joseph respond? Did he tell the Pharaoh, hey, you've come to the right man? Now he gave, he gave God all the credit. Joseph said, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable response. Or study the Apostle Paul, who considered himself not only the least of all the apostles, but the least of all saints. And when Paul's talking about saints, that's his word for Christians. So he's saying, I'm the least of all Christians. Or how about King David? He wrote these words in Psalm 115, 115 verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. When we contemplate the examples of humility given to us in Scripture, we find ourselves challenged to follow those examples. Think, too, about how frequently and grievously we sin against God. David was described as a, as a man after God's own heart, but he took time to contemplate his sin. When he did, he wrote Psalm 38, 4, For my inequities have flooded over my head, they are burdened too heavy for me to bear. Contemplating our sin humbles us in a couple of ways. For one thing, it should make us less judgmental. That's a symptom of pride, and it puts the focus on removing the log in our eye and not on spotting the speck in our brother or sister's eye. It also stops us from making excuses about our sin. Instead of blaming our circumstances or other people, we humbly admit our inability to please God on our own. Fourth thing we can do is we can think about the fact that we deserve nothing less than God's judgment and wrath. Mac does not mince his words when writing about the need to ponder what we deserve. He says this means that we need to really believe in our hearts, I deserve to go to hell. He goes on to say that it's easy enough to say, but it's another matter, to entirely, it's another matter entirely to mean it. Scripture tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. That is our destiny unless we come to faith in Christ. What does that wrath look like? There are more than 20 different words used in the Old Testament to express God's wrath. Combined, these words appear, appear more than 500 times. In each case, sin constitutes the reason for God's wrath. According to Charles Ryrie, author of Basic Theology, the effects of God's wrath include affliction, pestilence, slaughter, destruction, deliverance to enemies, drought, plagues, leprosy, and exile. As children of wrath, that is what we deserve. So the next time things don't go our way and we cry out, Lord, I don't deserve this, we're right. We deserve a whole lot worse. But the good news for us is that as believers in Jesus Christ, that's not the end of the story. Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And finally, we need to remember that everything we have comes from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When we think about the fact that everything we have was given to it, it humbles us, doesn't it? We have no reason for pride. The more we think about it that way, the more we develop an attitude of gratitude. 
And gratitude is a sign of a humble spirit. Which brings us back to where we started. A humble spirit is a teachable spirit. And if we have a teachable spirit, it will make us good disciples. One last thing that we need to keep in mind in our pursuit of humility, and with this we'll close, but it is important. We need to understand that we will never, never come to a point in this lifetime when we can relax and declare we have conquered pride and mastered humility. Not going to happen. One last Wayne Mack quote. Humility is like this. As soon as we think we are humble, we are not. As soon as we think we have it, we have lost it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we see from your word how important humility is. Father, help us to cultivate humility in our lives. Help us to see the tools that you use, the people and the trials that you bring into our lives to humble us. Help us to grow to be more like your son, Father. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.